Today we discuss the Pandora Papers, the massive leak of financial information exposing how the rich and powerful, or at least some of them, hide their assets and tax havens around the world. How does this institutionalized system of tax evasion function? What does this tell us about how the capitalist system actually works? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program we appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show richard wolf is the co-founder of the organization democracy at work and he's the author of many books the latest being the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself and a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's book, Understanding Marxism, has just been released, which features a new lengthy introduction which strengthens the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Richard Wolf, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before we talk about the Pandora Papers, Richard, I want to talk a little bit about your book, if you don't mind. Again, we are the Socialist Program. You're a regular guest. The people who are listening to us are either already socialists or many of them are curious about socialism, trying to understand what it is now that socialism has become less of a taboo as it had become when anti-communism and anti-socialism became in essence, the unofficial religion of the United States after the end of World War II. So let's talk real quick about understanding Marxism. When did you first publish it? What's new in your new introduction? Well, I first published it for a simple reason. As suddenly I discovered after 2010 or 11 or so that the interest in Marxism and socialism was starting to take off which I thought was a temporary blip because I had literally grown up and spent my working life in that Cold War anti-communism that you just spoke about. But suddenly, after 2010 and 11, the interest took off. And after the first year or two, which I couldn't quite believe, it only got more and greater interest. And we were beginning to get at Democracy at Work, the organization I work with, We were getting 
first two or three emails a day, then two or three emails an hour that basically asked us to tell the folks paying attention what Marxism and socialism were all about. And they were not questions that were negative or dismissive. They were honest questions from people who didn't really know what the word meant. So thorough was the demonization of Marxism and socialism in the United States for so many decades that literally large numbers of our people either had no idea or had a vague sense that these were all horrible things that basically communism, Marxism, socialism, anarchism, that these were all synonyms for minor variations among people who didn't like freedom and didn't like equality and didn't like whatever it is they associated with the United States. It was the internal manifestation of the Cold War with the Soviet Union that went on from the late 40s until the late 80s. And the questions started leading me to write long emails of answers, and it quickly became clear that this was silly. Why don't I sit down, take out a few weeks or a couple of months, and write down a kind of overview, because that's what most people were asking, that could be made available to everybody who might be interested. And so we did that, and as we foresaw, the thing took off. It's been translated in a number of languages. It is now in its multiple edition printing. The new one tries to bring forward all that has happened in the last three or so years, three, maybe four years, of new kinds of interest in Marxism, new questions. And so the introduction is an attempt to update, to enrich, to respond, if you like, to people who are not only asking, but now having learned a little bit, becoming even more interested and asking, you know, questions that are appropriate to someone who has the basics down, but now wants to sort of run with the ball and, and ask more questions. So it's a pure service book. It's designed for people at various levels of interest and knowledge, tries to make the case for Marxism. This is not a neutral book. This is a book about Marxism by someone, me, who thinks there's a great deal to learn here. Not that you have to subscribe to every detail, that'd be silly, but that this is a tradition of thinking that can teach us a lot. It certainly has taught me a lot. And if folks have been interested in the things I say when we have our conversations here, you should be aware that in all honesty, it isn't me, and you're very kind often to say it is, it's me just presenting an application, if you like, a way of applying what Marx and Marxists have had to teach to the situation we're living through now. Richard, before we move on to the Pandora Papers, I just want to emphasize for our audience that in global terms, and this is especially true after World War II, but even after World War I, when Marxism, which was largely a European phenomena, moved south and east and really became grabbed hold of by those seeking social change, national liberation, freedom from colonialism, not to mention freedom from capitalism, Marxism became the dominant philosophy of those who were fighting for social change and social justice. It was only here 
in the United States after World War II, especially, although it was beforehand as well, that the level of demonization of Marxism made it something demonic. And, you know, Lenin, of course, the great Russian revolutionary who was the principal leader of the Russian Revolution, in 1913, when he was in Europe in exile, he wrote a short introduction for Marxism. It was called Three Sources and Three Component Parts of Marxism, and it's written for the public. Of course, he tried to make sure that it would pass the czar's, you know, censorious pencil. And I want to read real quick to you two paragraphs, the opening two paragraphs from it, and then get your comment, and then we'll move on to Pandora Papers. Lenin writes, Throughout the world, the teachings of Marx evoked the utmost hostility and hatred of all bourgeois science, both official and liberal, which regards Marxism as a kind of pernicious sect. And no other attitude is to be expected, for there can be no impartial social science in a society based on class struggle. In one way or another, all official and liberal science defends wage slavery, whereas Marxism has declared relentless war on that slavery. To expect science to be impartial in a wage slave society is as foolishly naive as to expect impartiality from manufacturers on the question of whether workers' wages ought not to be increased by decreasing the profits of capital. And then he writes, and I'll read one more sentence, but this is not all. The history of philosophy and the history of social science shows with perfect clarity that there is nothing resembling sectarianism in Marxism in the sense of it being a hidebound, petrified doctrine, a doctrine which rose away from the high road of the development of world society. Anyway, I note that because you also, in the introduction to your book, the new hardcover edition of Understanding Marxism, emphasize the issue of class struggle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I like to use myself as an example in terms of my education. I'm a product, as I think I've mentioned before, of what we consider in this country to be the elite academic institutions. So I was an undergraduate at Harvard, and then I went to get a master's degree in economics at Stanford out in California. And when my leading professor there died, I decided to finish my education. And I went to Yale, where I got more master's degrees and a PhD in economics. So I spent a continuous 10 years, 20 semesters, going through an economics and history curriculum in those three universities. I never had a course in Marxian economic theory. I didn't have one because none was ever offered in those 20 semesters. I had limitless numbers of courses explaining to me how, why capitalism was the greatest thing since sliced bread in detail, looking at it from an international perspective, looking at it in terms of public finance, looking at it in terms of labor economics and price systems and you name it. But a critical perspective? Not even one out of 20 semesters was devoted to it. On the faculties at Yale and Harvard, there were no Marxists, or if there were those who had some notion, they were quiet about it. 
They didn't want it to be known that they had perhaps studied it or learned from it or used it in their research. It's extraordinary that the way in this society, the bias, the lopsidedness of a discipline like economics, which refers to itself as quote unquote science, illustrates Lenin's point down to the last detail. And there's still virtually no Marxist presence in most of these institutions either. I mean, it's not quite as bad as it was when I went to school, but it isn't very much better. And there isn't a remote willingness, nothing even close to it, to have what students need, which would be a curriculum that approaches capitalism through the eyes of people who celebrate it and like it. And I'm all in favor of that. But that should be alongside a curriculum that students would have to take both kinds that presents capitalism from a critical perspective. That would be the only honest thing to do. The library is full of literature that's critical, but the students are never directed to it unless they find their way there on their own, which is how I had to learn it and people like me had to learn it on our own time, in our own way, and at the cost of spending our time doing the mathematical exercises that constitutes mainstream economics education at the university level. So those were great paragraphs to read of Lenin. What he understood at his time is as valid today as it was then. All right, Richard, let's turn to the Pandora Papers. I'm looking at BBC News, a simple guide to the Pandora Papers leak. The Pandora Papers is a leak of almost 12 million documents that reveal hidden wealth, tax avoidance, and money laundering by some of the world's most powerful and rich. More than 600 journalists in 117 countries have been trawling through the files from 14 sources for months, finding stories that are being published this week. This is a few weeks ago. The data was obtained by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, in Washington, D.C., which has been working with more than 140 media organizations on its biggest ever global investigation. BBC Panorama and The Guardian have led the investigation inside the U.K. So we're going to talk here about what these papers show, how a state like South Dakota became you know, the Cayman Islands again of the world. In other words, a place to shelter or hide taxable income. I also want to ask you about some of the criticisms and skepticism of the Pandora Papers because many of the highest earners, well, I'm using air quotes around the word earners, people with the highest income or highest asset levels in the United States, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, they're not mentioned here. Perhaps they're so rich they don't have to hide their money or they hide it legally in the United States, but there's been some criticism that this is a selective prosecution and that the American ruling class has been largely exempted from it, although the United States as a center of tax laundering or tax evasion has not. Anyway, let's get started. Okay. Periodically, investigative journalists, those few journalists that still deserve the name, have been able to use modern hacking and other techniques to get information when they've needed it. And they've also been helped by people who work in the shadow enterprises, the accounting firms, the law firms, 
that are the intermediaries that wealthy people go to to be connected into the tax haven, the place where you can basically hide your money. A few years ago, a single firm in the Caribbean was caught out. Those came to be known as the Panama Papers because the firm was located there. This is a much bigger operation because that one was so important in shaking up the world by revealing lots of people who had been doing this, kings, queens, and so forth. But the problem with this set of papers is less what they discovered than the fact that it was so enormous that it left an enormous amount of discretion in the hands of the journalists because, you know, if there's millions of documents, what are you going to cover? You can't cover it in detail. There's too much. So you have to figure what is it that's going to get folks to read whatever article is being written. And though it became very sexy to point to the king of Lebanon or to point to some other famous person whose name was caught up here because they were in it. What people should understand is that you hide your money for a variety of reasons. The most important one for public policy is, of course, hiding it from taxes. And one of the reasons you probably don't see as many Americans there so far, although I'm sure more documents are coming and we will see more names that are American, but for the time being, it's because the United States has changed its laws so that hiding is not as necessary here as it once was. That hasn't happened in other countries. If anything, things have gone the other way. And so there's more interest in billionaires around the world than there used to be on the one hand. And on the other, the irony that the United States, which wasn't in the past a leading location for tax havens, is now the number two in the world, the second country after only the Cayman Islands in the Caribbean, we are now number two. And the estimates, and these are reasonable estimates of people with no axe to grind, is that South Dakota alone has now $350 billion worth of money hidden this way. And the four or five other states in the United States that are busy following South Dakota's lead because they want a piece of the action here make the total estimate about a trillion dollars. So we're talking vast amounts of money, which would be generating conservatively hundreds of billions of dollars in tax revenues, enabling the world to do a much better job of fighting the pandemic, a much better job of overcoming poverty and all the other problems of our society. But we can't solve them in part because the very wealthy are able to hide the money. I thought it might be interesting for your listeners to know a little bit about the leading example here in the United States. Uh, that's the state of South Dakota, a state you don't hear all that much about, uh, sparsely populated in the Midwest of the United States, but they've taken the lead and they took the lead years ago. The story of South Dakota starts in 1981 when they were the first state to say there is no limit, no cap on interest rates. If you have a credit card 
the credit card company, the bank ultimately that lends you the money that is being in play every time you use a credit card, it can charge any interest rate it wants. There is no legal limit. Other states didn't do that. Many other states haven't done it to this day, but South Dakota did it. And by the way, that's the reason many of you listening, if you look closely at where the headquarters are of the bank or the credit card company that you deal with, you will discover, perhaps to your surprise, that it's South Dakota. And since very few people live there, you have a mystery which I've just cleared up for you. They're there because they want to be free to charge whatever interest rate they want without a legal cap. And that's why South Dakota got what? Well, it got a lot of banks to open up offices there. They were modest offices, but they had to pay a lawyer to do the paperwork. They had to pay some accountants. They had to rent some space. They brought a few jobs, not many. And South Dakota said, oh, this is great. And a lot of banks will come. And they got the idea. And a few years later, they began to pass one law after another. The most important of these had to do with setting up trusts. Trust is just a legal instrument. And the most famous of these are called settler trusts. A billionaire anywhere in the world arrives or sends a flunky to go to South Dakota and to set up a trust and to deposit millions or billions into this trust. They name a trustee, that's somebody there in South Dakota to manage it all, and a beneficiary, their mother, their son, their daughter. And after a while, they amended the law to allow the benefactor to name himself as the beneficiary, the fellow putting the money in or the woman putting the money in to the account. And the beauty of the law is that no one can know who it is. If you come to the person who put the money in, they say, oh, no, I don't know anything about it. It's not mine. It's in the hands of the trustee. The law specifies this. If you ask the trustee or the beneficiary, they say, oh, no, it's not my money. I'm just a trustee. Or it's not my money. I'm just a beneficiary. In the end, not only does nobody have to give anybody any information, but they allowed these trusts to exist. Get ready for this in perpetuity. In other words, not only can you put a billion dollars in there, but you can give the billion to your descendants, whoever's there after you die, and there's no inheritance tax, there's no estate tax, nobody knows anything about it, money moves in and out without anybody having any record that they can expose you for having stolen the money or expose you for having evaded taxes for 50 years or anything else. It's a gamble for the rich. And it's important for an American audience to understand that South Dakota has been doing this for the last 40 years, escaping huge amounts of money in taxes all that time, right up until the present, right as I'm speaking. And everybody should be clear, Republicans because South Dakota is mostly a Republican state, they call this, you'll love this, the free market. 
because you're free to do anything in South Dakota that you want with your money, and no one can follow you. No foreign government, no American government, no IRS, nobody can know anything. And that's all legal because the South Dakota government has set it up that way. Clearly, this is not in the national interest. Clearly, the shenanigans that are going on here would blow your mind if you ever had access to them. It could be stopped in five seconds if the federal government of the United States made it illegal to do this, since it takes precedent over the states. And this is a nationally concerned question, since it's everybody's taxes that are being hidden, not just out of the people of inside South Dakota, because the number of billionaires there is smaller than, than the number of fingers on my hand. So that's the reality. Neither Republicans nor Democrats from the past or right up to Mr. Biden now are doing anything to stop this. When they make comments about tax havens in the Caribbean, please remember the number two tax haven in the world after the Cayman Islands is not Switzerland. It's not Luxembourg. It's not the Channel Islands. It's not any of the other places that do this kind of stuff. It's the United States of America led by South Dakota. Permitting this is an inexcusable service done by our political leadership to the richest people engaged in the shadiest of financial manipulation. Richard, as you mentioned about South Dakota, no corporate or individual income tax Right. The trust companies that manage this massive bundle of assets, $367 billion in these trusts, are subject to examination, supervision, and charter fees. But in 2019, all of those levies, get this, all of those levies added up to $1.5 million. That's what South Dakota was getting. Then South Dakota said, well, look, you know, we're getting jobs this way. You know, the usual fallback argument. This will provide jobs. But actually, the number of jobs in the financial services sector in South Dakota in the last year declined, even while this phenomena was escalating. So the number of people working in the financial sector in the state of South Dakota went from 30,500 in 2009 to 29,000. And it just shows that any explanation, any rationale, any sort of public justification for crime, criminal activity, fraud, I mean, even if it's, quote, legal, it's clearly designed to evade laws and thus is illegal by, I'd say, any meaningful interpretation of what law means. If you have $367 billion being hidden so that it can't be taxed in one state of South Dakota, and you think about all the people in the United States who are in prison, 2.4 million, one out of every four or five prisoners in the world is right here in the land of the free. And they are incarcerated, according to the 13th Amendment, they are actually eligible for enslavement because the 13th Amendment allows slavery for those convicted of a crime. But if you think about what the crimes were that most of the people in prison either did or pled guilty to, most of them are crimes of survival. Most of them are 
very, very tiny financial crimes. And I think if you looked at, if you did a survey of all the people in prison for stealing and you looked at the numbers in an aggregate way, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't amount to $367 billion. No. But of course, none of these folks will ever see the inside of a jail cell. No, and it, of course, breeds this kind of thing because South Dakota has been able, and by the way, they not only do they have no income tax, they have no inheritance tax, and they have no capital gains tax. I mean, they are nirvana for people who have financial assets. And let's remember, you know, top 10% of the American people own the overwhelming majority of financial assets, stocks, bonds, cash, and so on. When you allow South Dakota to do this for 40 years, that's why you now have half a dozen other states in the United States, Nevada leading the pack, trying to do the same thing cash in on this, get these nice jobs for their lawyers, for their accountants, for their bankers. Yeah, it's a small number, a few thousand people, but they're raking it in and they're existing in states where it's not so easy to get other kinds of work. So the rationale is, who cares if billions are lost to the world that could make it a better place? We have a nice, comfortable living here in no place, Nevada, or in South Dakota and places like that. It's a remarkable example of capitalism's inefficiency, of capitalism's inequality, of capitalism's injustice. I mean, he's glaringly screaming at you. And let's remember, just like the United States government could overrule South Dakota on these questions as a matter of national economic security, what resistance do you imagine the Cayman Islands could present to the United States, let alone if the United States together with other countries who are hiding money there, the British, the French, the German, the Italians, Chinese, Japanese, and other billionaires, the Cayman Islands can only do that because the very leaders in these other countries are as inept and unwilling to challenge this system as Mr. Trump was, as Mr. Biden is. In other words, this is the people at the top making sure that they can evade taxes, evade inheritance. It makes a mockery of the old idea we're supposed to start with a level playing field. The child born into a family that has hidden a billion dollars in South Dakota doesn't have the same life chances as a person born down the street from that bank in South Dakota to a working class family. And that inequality is the thing that this release of the Pandora Papers makes so starkly evident for everyone to see. Indeed. And the poverty rate in South Dakota, also very high. And of course, as we close out, Richard, you know, big parts of South Dakota are still under treaty right by the Sioux people, the Lakota Sioux, the struggle there against the Dakota Access Pipeline, the struggle for to honor indigenous treaties. There in South Dakota, too, was the Wounded Knee occupation 50 years ago. And of course, our friend, Leonard Peltier, still in prison, still in prison. All of that in South Dakota. Again, an example why U.S. capitalism 
is as we've thematically chosen this week, U.S. capitalism is in fact a form of organized crime. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. He is also releasing a new hard copy edition of the book he authored, Understanding Marxism, with a new, significant, substantial introduction. By the way, Richard, if people want to get the hardcover edition, do they do it from your website? Yes, that's the easiest. Just go to Democracy at Work. That's all one word, democracyatwork.info, and it'll provide you with all the ways to order the book, etc. Okay, and if you want to read more about Richard's writings or see his videos, go to rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.